0: Our reading this morning comes from 1 Kings chapter 19 as we continue on looking at the lives of Elijah and will this morning be introduced to his successor Elisha. Uh, The text is printed for you in in your bulletins. You can see the font is a little bigger, it's a little shorter of a reading than than last week's minuscule font. Uh, But we will be reading 1 Kings 19 in its entirety. So 1 Kings 19, beginning at verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. For the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank, and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be a king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the twelfth. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him this has been the reading of god's word please be seated <clears throat> you know the saying to it to be brought back down to earth right to be brought back down to earth it's when things are going really well you have a lot of success the results are all going your way and then all of a sudden that stops and the results are no longer going your way. Successes now don't really quite feel like successes. And so we say you have come back down to earth. I think we have a really big example of this right now, kind of looking at all of the tech companies and how they're doing. Right? During the pandemic, all of the Zooms and Facebooks and even Amazons were, were feeling untouchable And yet every single week, it seems like we're hearing reports of of thousands of people being laid off in those tech sectors. So we would say about that industry, they have come back down to earth. Can you think of a time in your life when you would say, that's when I came back down to earth? A health diagnosis, a business decision a loss of a job, a breakdown of a relationship. It's a universal experience, right? That's why we call life a roller coaster. It gets to that idea. Sometimes you're at the top, and then you remember what it's like to be at the bottom. You know why I'm starting here, because Elijah has come back down to earth, hasn't he? In a really hard way, a really trying and soul-crushing way, Elijah, who we left off in chapter 18, That is peak. Successful. Results were pouring in. And in chapter 19, he's come back down to earth. Last week, we looked at the very memorable story of Elijah versus the 450 prophets of Baal. The contest was determining who is the God in Israel? Who is the God to be served? Is it the Lord or is it Baal? So the prophets of Baal set up their altar with a bowl on top of it, and they gyrate, and they cry, and they sing, and they cut themselves and there's silence, there's no response. And then Elijah sets up his bullet, looks the same, except he dumps water on top of it, despite there being an incredible drought. He sets up trenches so that the water pours into trenches in front and behind of the altar. And then fire from heaven comes down and consumes Elijah's altar. And the people respond, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now, we didn't read the end of chapter 18 last week, but what you see at the end of chapter 18 is Elijah prays for rain, and finally the rain clouds come and it begins to rain. And so Ahab gets out of there. He gets into his chariot before it's too muddy for him to go back to Samaria, and then we read that the Spirit empowers Elijah to sprint ahead of Ahab, back to the palace. This is, this is important. This is symbolically important because we are all leaving chapter 18 on a high. We are leaving chapter 18 excited because it looks like Israel is back on track because the king is now behind the prophet. The king is now being led by God's word, which is represented by Elijah. The word of God is at the palace before Ahab gets there. All signs are pointing Thumbs up. This is good. And then, as we just read, things aren't lasting. Things don't stick. There's a lot going on in chapter 19. There's a lot for us to grab hold of, especially if you've been in a place of discouragement or despair or despondency. There's a lot you can relate to with Elijah. We want to talk about that. We want to see that Elijah certainly is is a prophet who is discouraged, to say the least, But he's not just a a depressed prophet, he's also a determined prophet. And what we see in this chapter is he's eager to fulfill his duties as a prophet of God. And then God beautifully comes alongside of Elijah and he reminds him where the endurance in Elijah's ministry comes from. Where endurance in Elijah's life can be found. He reminds Elijah that he is sovereign over everything that has and is and will transpire. And everything about Elijah's call and his ministry and his life is grounded in the promises that God is keeping. And so we're going to unpack this, this chapter, I think it's, it's just as good as the last one, I think these are some of the, the great stories from scripture, and so what we're going to do is we break down that story as we enter the drama of chapter 19, we're going to break it down into three points, they're listed for you in your bulletins, we're going to look at Elijah's crisis, Elijah's comfort, and then Elijah's call. All right, so let's look at Elijah's crisis. That's kind of the point of of, of this chapter, right? So Ahab is king. He comes home to the queen Jezebel. We all can relate to this story because it's just a wife asking, okay, honey, what happened? And Ahab doesn't sound like a believer, we're presuming. He just reports everything that happened, how all of the prophets of Baal who were on Jezebel's payroll, they were all killed. And she responds with, and I will do everything in my power to make sure Elijah is killed. She sends a messenger to report, Elijah, I want your head. Already, I think this is crucial after chapter 18, because the same works that God uses to draw his people back to him, those same works provoke ruthless anger toward Elijah, his prophet. And the thing is, is that this is not the first time it has happened, and it certainly won't be the last time. Now, you might argue Elijah was dramatically provocative, right? What about Jesus? What's Jesus' story? Why did the religious leaders hate Jesus so much? Well, it's very similar to Elijah, isn't it? They threaten the power structures. They take the hearts of the people away from those who have the power in society. And so already with Jesus' ministry, his message of the kingdom provokes the hostility and hatred and resentment of the kingdoms of this world, as represented by Herod, as represented by the religious leaders is represented by even Pilate, and this is still true. It's still true that the message of God's kingdom provokes hostility from the kingdoms of this world, and, and I want to be very careful here because I do think there's a strain. Right? There's a strain in the church that seeks persecution. There's a strain in the church, especially in the West, that, that reads every kind of negative interaction with the church as persecution. Oftentimes, we can receive the world's scorn uh, because we're being jerks, Right? That's possible. Or we can receive the world's scorn because we're fighting for the same influence and power, using the same tactics as everybody else, and so of course we're receiving scorn. So let's put that on the table. That's true. At the same time, Jesus says, expect persecution. They will hate you because of me. When we proclaim the word of God, law and gospel, there is an expectation that we will receive resistance from the world. One writer puts it this way. He says, Inherent in the gospel is the condemnation of this world. And when we preach such a gospel, we cannot help but start a fight. What does he mean by that? This. To proclaim Yahweh is God, to proclaim the Lord is God, is to proclaim Baal is not. Asherah is not. To proclaim Christ as king is to condemn the gods of this age. A crucified savior for the salvation of sinners who cannot save themselves is a condemnation of human righteousness. It's a condemnation of worldly success and power. It's a condemnation of our desire to find everything in pleasure and comfort. Any other gods that consume our minds and our hearts to proclaim Christ as king is an affront if I'm living according to that different system. And so words of life will always be heard by some as words of condemnation, as fighting words. That's what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 2. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, but among those who are perishing, what are we? stench of death. A stench of death. And that's the message that Elijah is about ready to come face to face with. Again, you can imagine Elijah riding the high of the aroma of life. All of these people who are spineless, all of these people who were just uh, completely embedded in their systems of idolatry, they leave chapter 18 confessing the Lord he is God, but now he's reminded that to others he has become a stench of death. Queen Jezebel wants him dead. Now beginning at verse 3, I'm going to present a slightly different interpretation of the story of Elijah than I think the majority interpretation. I don't like to do this, but I think it does help us understand what's going on here a little bit better. So the word to be afraid, the verb like to to fear in Hebrew, it basically looks the same as to see, to observe. I think that's the preferred translation. I don't think Elijah is afraid of Jezebel. I mean, after Mount Carmel, uh, he prays to God, fire comes down and consumes the altar. I don't think he's afraid of Jezebel. The word to to run for his life or to flee, it's the same verb you would use to say to, to go, to walk, to leave. And so I think the preferred translation is not then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life. I think it's he saw and he left with his life. Now why is that important? It's because what's happening here with Elijah is that he had these amazing experiences and he sees there is no lasting change in Israel. He sees this is what Israel will continue to be. And so in 1 Kings 17, Elijah flees to the wilderness. The word of God leaves Israel. I think the same thing is happening here. He takes off as God's prophet. He is the only one whose ministry was calling Israel to repentance and faith. He was the only voice confronting the idolatry in the land. And so he leaves the land. He sees nothing is changing. And he leaves 100 miles to the south of the southern kingdom, Judah, Beersheba, leaves his servant there, and then he goes a day's journey even further into the wilderness. And he prays to God, verse 4, it is enough. O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept. It's Elijah's crisis. He sees Israel for, for what she is, and she is not changing he is exhausted. Can you imagine how exhausted Elijah is at this point? Like, Think of the most exhausting day of your life. That has to be Elijah, right? After everything that, he, that he's been through, um, let's just set aside killing the prophets of Baal is included in there, right? Sprinting ahead of Ahab, granted in the power of the spirit, but, but surely driven by adrenaline, surely driven by excitement, and then realizing nothing is changing, uh, it makes sense that he does what all of us would do, which is pull the covers over our head and say, just kill me now. Nothing has changed, and there's nothing Elijah feels that he can do. One of my favorite sayings is that God's office is found at the end of your rope. Elijah is at the end of his rope, and that's where he is invited into God's office. What's Elijah's comfort in light of the crisis? uh, Let's keep going here. There's a beautiful parallel. I want to point this parallel out. I think it just means so much. So Jezebel hears the report, and she sends a messenger to convey, Elijah, you are toast. You are dead. I will do anything to have your head on a platter. And then in verse 5, Elijah lays down, and he sleeps under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise, and eat. This is the last time I'm going to do it in this sermon, but I want, I want to point this parallel out. There's nothing wrong with the translation you have at all, but in Hebrew, the word messenger is malach, okay? The Hebrew word malach also is angel. An angel is just a messenger of the Lord, and I think that's a beautiful parallel. So Jezebel sends a malach of death, but the Lord sends a better malach. The Lord sends a messenger of life and restoration. And this messenger, who, yes, it's an angel, of course. Touches Elijah, a beautiful gesture of comfort. Think of all the times that Jesus in his ministry simply touches someone before he ministers to them. And he says to Elijah, Arise and eat. And Elijah looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. Just a couple chapters ago, Elijah was with the widow of Zarephath who says, I only have enough supplies to make one more pita bread, and then my son and I are going to die. And Elijah says, Make me a cake and the jar of flour shall not be spent. Same words, cake and jar. The widow and her desperation is provided for. Elijah needs help right now, and God provides for him. I just think this is a beautiful passage. Of the God who sees Elijah at his low point, He sees his prophet in despair, and he sends an angel to be tender to him, to minister to him. Again, imagining just how absolutely exhausted and spent Elijah must be, and God pats him on the back through his angel, and he says, Let me give you something to eat. Your blood sugar's low. The Lord is Elijah's shepherd who spreads a table for him, even in the wilderness. Even in the midst of his foes, as Psalm 23 puts it. And this is, this is who God is, isn't it? This is the God who restores and then ministers in these very tangible ways. I think of the story of, of Jesus ministering to Peter who needs restoration after the resurrection. But first, he says, come have breakfast with me. Isn't this being reenacted every single week to some extent? The Lord's Supper, this nourishing meal for pilgrims. And how many times do we come to this table, not with our, our, our success, not with our, our merit badges, but we come disillusioned and confused and despairing. And God is still the God who lays out a table for us in the wilderness. So the first aspect of this scene is powerful. The most basic needs of Elijah are being met. Elijah is nourished and then he lays back down to sleep angel of the Lord comes again, wakes him up, and he says, you need to eat, but this time it's not just about nourishment. You're going to have to use this food to sustain you for 40 days and 40 nights because I'm taking you deeper into the wilderness to Mount Horeb, the Mount of God. We know this mountain normally by another name, not Mount Horeb, but Mount Sinai, same mountain. In verse 9, Elijah comes to a cave and lodged in it. The oldest traditions of the rabbis, which has been picked up by by Christian interpreters over the last 2,000 years, is that Elijah doesn't simply go to a random cave, but he goes to the cleft of the rock that Moses hid in when Moses asked to see the presence of God. And so the word of the Lord, not the angel now, but the word of the Lord, God himself comes to Elijah and he asks him, what are you doing here, Elijah? It's not a rebuke. God sent Elijah there, he knows why he's there This is an invitation for Elijah to pour his heart out For Elijah to unburden himself The comfort for Elijah in the midst of his crisis Is the presence of God The God who calls Elijah by name The God who says, what are you doing here? Talk to me The God in whom Elijah finds rest I mean, what a picture of tired, burned out, frustrated, angry Elijah being brought to the cleft of the rock. We sing it in the hymn, don't we? Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. This is a story of burned out Elijah hiding himself in the cleft of the rock to be present with God. Again, there's something so relatable about Elijah's struggle. I think this is one of the chapters in your, in your Bibles. You just want to throw a bookmark in because I'm, I'm guessing that, that many of us in this room are not in a place of, of complete despondency and discouragement and depression. But maybe we will be there soon. Maybe we will be there at some point. And so put a bookmark in this because it, it's all here, isn't it? One day we will be faced with those kinds of disappointments. And yet here is this picture of God inviting Elijah to find rest in him. It's the promise that Jesus holds out for us. Come and find rest for your souls in me. It's 1 Peter 5. Cast all of your anxieties on me. Why? Because he cares. Simply because he cares. That's what this chapter is. It's this beautiful, memorable story that reminds us of the heart of God for his people. I'm guessing that many of us, if not most of us, uh, knew that when we came into this room, that all of the coping mechanisms we go to probably aren't healthy. A little retail therapy when things get hard, food and drink, pouring ourselves into work, self-medicating, maybe indulging our, our bitterness and our anger. And here's a story of a better way. To anchor yourself in the cleft of the rock. I mean to imagine in, in, your, in your low place, right? To go to the Lord where where we can hear through his word, you know, Robert, what are you doing here? And oh to answer, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has no- nothing I desire but you. My flesh and my heart may fail. Correction will fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's the invitation for us to see here. To also cling to the better man of sorrows acquainted with our grief. See, Elijah is our our example for sure, but Jesus is our champion. Elijah said his cup was too much to bear, and so God removed the cup from him, didn't he? But no angel came to relieve Jesus. Maybe while Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, you can imagine angels surrounding the Father's throne just waiting for the command to go. I mean, what if this angel that ministered to Elijah was just waiting for the green light? But it never came to minister to Jesus. Elijah asked for his cup to be removed, and it was. Jesus, his cup was not removed. He drank it for us. So that we would be a people who find a rest for our souls in him, right? Right? So we've seen Elijah's crisis, his comfort in the presence of God. And then finally, we'll look at Elijah's call. Uh, This is where we'll close, and it's where on the one hand, we want to acknowledge Elijah's despair. That was the whole point of the the point I just made. Um, Elijah's frustration, his feeling at the end of his rope. But on the other hand, this is not self-pitying. Um, he's not moping. Elijah is not Eor. He's doing more than just pouring out his heart to God. I would argue that he is exercising his privilege, his role as a prophet of God. In verse 9, the Lord says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah makes his case. He says, I have been jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For The people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Then he stands on the mountain and the Lord comes by in this really memorable scene, right? There's a great and strong wind that tears through where Elijah is, but we're told God is not in the wind. Then there's an earthquake, but God is not in the earthquake. And then there's a fire, and God is not in the fire. And so all three of these are the expected traditional signs of the visible presence of God. So think about Exodus when Israel is camped out at the bottom of Mount Sinai, and God is on the mountain, and there's, there are clouds, and there's thunder and lightning and fire. And Moses says, I'm going to go meet with God. And what do the people say? Good. We don't want to do that. It is good for you to go speak with us. Well, that's what Elijah's experiencing these visible and audible experiences of God, except God is not in them. And then he hears the sound of a low whisper, a hard little phrase to translate, a a very quiet sound, a a, a very silent, almost silent, still voice. In in English, we, we typically refer to this as a still, small voice. And then what does Elijah do when he hears that sound? He covers his face because he knows he's about ready to be confronted with the glory of God. And he is in the presence of God once again. This is one of those passages, one of those scenes in the Bible that that it it kind of functions like theological Play-Doh. We kind of make the still small voice what we want to make the still small voice out to be. I think if you went to a Christian bookstore, you'd find like 50 different understandings of the still small voice. Um, you, You know, stop listening to everybody else and go internal. Go into your heart. And that's where God speaks to us, inside of our hearts. So we just need the quiet so we can hear God speak to us. I think quiet is good. It's a really good thing. But I think what this is communicating is something that's very clear to grasp. And it's something essential for us to grasp. And it's simply this. God is present in his word. That's what it is. God is present in his word. I mean, wasn't Elijah a little bit disgruntled or or disillusioned maybe the better word? Because he's on Mount Carmel. He sees God in the fire, doesn't he? Yet there's no results. There are no long-term results. Israel looks as if it's the same. And so God shows up here and He says, Forget the fire, forget the earthquake, forget the wind. I am present most powerfully in the Word. For Elijah as a prophet, that means everything because the word goes through him. For you and I, it's a word written down in the scriptures. It's a word heard and received. It's a word proclaimed and heralded. God is revealed in his word. We go to the word to hear from God by his spirit using this text in order to make himself known to us. The temptation is for the flashy, right? But that couldn't change Israel. It's the word that has the power to convince, convert, and comfort by the power of the spirit. So God comes to Elijah in the quiet word and notice what he does. He repeats the question, What are you doing here? And Elijah answers verbatim what he answered in verse 10. Why? He is bringing formal charges against his people. As a prophet, Elijah is invited into the council of the Lord. He is part of the council of the Lord. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah says, You know who a false prophet is? It's one who has not ever stood in the council of the Lord. So Elijah is an officer of the court of God. And he is bringing charges, and this analogy breaks down pretty fast, but it's it's maybe something like verse 10 is the grand jury testimony, and then verse 13 is the official trial. And then we know Elijah isn't just having a pity party, but an official trial, because God doesn't tell Elijah, buddy, snap out of it, you're fine. He agrees with Elijah. He basically puts down the, the gavel and he says, guilty, and here's the sentence. Guilty. I'm going to do away with Ahab's house. And here's the sentence, three swords and 7,000 faithful. That's the sentence, three swords, 7,000 faithful. Elijah, you're going to go raise up three swords of judgment, a new ruler in Syria, that's Israel's neighbor to the north. You're going to anoint a new king, Jehu, who will take over from Ahab's house. And you're going to commission a successor, a new prophet, Elisha. And I will preserve 7,000 in Israel who have not and will not serve Baal. Ahab will be overthrown, and I will always have a church that is faithful. Chapter 19 ends with this brief scene of Elijah anointing Elisha. We don't know much about these guys, right? Elisha's rich. That's all we know about him. Because he's got 24 oxen, which in that day and age would be a pretty considerable farm. Elisha goes, he tells his family goodbye, he burns everything that he has. It's it's a divorce from his former way of life. He is all in as a prophet now, following Elijah, fully committed to this new calling. I think this is such a good story. Uh, It's such a powerful picture that we've we've been given here. And so as we wrap up, I want to just conclude with a couple of thoughts for us to keep thinking through. What do Elijah and Elisha have to do with me? Uh, I haven't talked about this yet, but it's it's very much true that Elijah is a hinge. And so in in the the first hand, he points us back to Moses. And the way the Bible presents Moses is he, he is the single greatest human being that has ever walked the face of the earth until the better Moses comes. But he's always number two. And so Elijah points us back to Moses. How does he do this? Well, he he almost reenacts the life of Moses, right? Back in Exodus, Moses confronts Pharaoh and the court magicians. Elijah confronts Ahab and the prophets of Baal. Moses leads the Hebrew slaves into the wilderness and is miraculously fed for 40 years. Elijah flees Jezebel into the wilderness and is miraculously fed for 40 days and 40 nights. And that pattern, of course, will be repeated once more in the life of Jesus. And so you start to see where Elijah fits in as a hinge that looks back to Moses and then looks forward to the better Moses, Jesus, who is to come. The big difference that we will see unfolded is that while Elijah does signs and wonders that will all be displayed in the ministry of Jesus, he is a prophet of judgment. He is a John the Baptist, which is why John the Baptist is called who? Elijah. Elijah is a John the Baptist that will prepare the way for the ministry of Elisha, who is not a prophet of judgment, but a prophet of life, as we will see in the coming weeks. Elisha, Elijah, the Lord is my God, will continue to confront the non-gods of Israel under Ahab and Jezebel, and then he will hand the baton off to Elisha, Elisha, my God saves. And that's where we'll continue to explore in the coming weeks. Elijah as a faithful prophet, indicting Israel as covenant breakers, and God in his justice agreeing, but in his mercy he sends a prophet, not with a ministry of judgment, but a ministry of life and salvation. And that's a story familiar because that's our story too. We too are condemned as covenant breakers, as unfaithful. God and his justice should raise up a sword of his wrath against us. But in his mercy, he sends not just a better prophet, but a savior to come and save his people from their idolatry and their unbelief and their sin. And his name is not Elisha, my God saves, but Yeshua, Jesus, the Lord saves. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be present among us to take this ancient word that in so many ways feels so distant and divorced from our lives and our culture and and our understanding, and yet we believe that these two are the words of life. So God, would you use these words of life? to bring us to a place of repentance, we bring our idolatry and our sins to you, to bring us to a place of faith where we can see through the work of Elijah and Elisha the greater work of Jesus. Not just a prophet who comes and, and mediates for us, but a redeemer, a savior, who saves us from our sin, who saves us from ourselves. Lord, would you use this word to do that? Lord, I pray for for those in this room who are in that season of of despair, who are in that season of discouragement. Lord, I pray that this word would be an encouragement to them to, to find their rest, to find their sustenance in your presence. Lord, that they would cast their cares upon you because you care you are the God of steadfast, promise-keeping love. Lord, would all of us grab hold of that message this morning? We need you to do the work of of making this not something that we just hear in one ear and then let it slip out the other. We need it penetrating into our hearts, into uh, the very fibers of our being, so that more and more we would look to you as our refuge and our strength. Lord, would you do that work among us? We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.